Welcome back to the 33rd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today we're going to go through some of the top stories, including how the red wave turned into a red ripple, why Republicans have a hard time winning in major cities, and the start of a possible OPEC-like battery cartel. We'll talk about that one more at the end. And of course, we'll finish everything with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. But that's enough rambling for me. Let's get into our daily debate. So, did the Republicans overplay their hand this midterm election? There was plenty of conversation, plenty of talk about a red wave. But that didn't really come to pass. We didn't see it happen. Though they made gains, and... You know, they weren't the most historic. They were still able to come out and win the House, and maybe, if the runoffs go their way, win the Senate. Is it a a messaging problem? You know, we've heard this term before, but we've never actually seen this red wave or even a blue wave when it's been predicted before, except if you maybe go back to the Reagan era where there was a massive red wave But otherwise, you don't necessarily see this ever materialize. So the final question here, and I know I've posed a lot, is should Republicans stop beating on this red wave message and start underplaying their chances of winning? Because, you know, as a person who follows this, I listen to this rhetoric of a red wave, and it really makes me sit there and say, you understand that when you say there's going to be a red wave, it discourages people who think that, oh, <clears throat> it could be a close election, and they would go out and vote if it was. When they hear that term red wave, they're sitting there going, oh, okay, it's a red wave. I, I don't need to go vote. I talked to a few different conservatives and libertarians on my college campus, and they said, yeah, no, we, we didn't go vote. We, we, we thought that it was in the bag. We didn't know that or think that it was necessary. So this messaging can be negative at some points. Now, do you want to underplay it so much that people believe they don't have a chance of winning at all? No, but maybe they should uh, stop using this term red wave in the future. All right, well, speaking of the red wave, uh, let's get to our first article from The New Republic. The red wave died down to a red trickle. So though this election has been, you know, flip-flop and speculation on top of speculation, does anyone remember in August when there was a small, small chance that Democrats were going to make historical, buck the historical trends and make gains in the House and Senate? Quote, a string of legislative victories and a little dumb luck gave rise to the hope that Democrats might hold or even increase their majorities. But this moment proved to be all too fleeting. And in the fortnight leading up to the election, the narrative shifted hard in the direction of a certain Armageddon in a red wave that was going to be more powerful or powerful enough to knock Democrats out of believed to be safe seats, end quote. And, you know, I already discussed that this didn't happen. But the fact that in August alone, there was this feeling, this sentiment that the Democrats could buck these historic trends that whenever the president, whoever the president is, whether he's Republican or Democrat, whatever party he is normally loses some ground in the House or and the Senate. It's kind of a referendum on the president. 
So the fact that these Democrats in August were saying, oh, we, we can really bounce back from some of these legislative victories. We can carry this momentum, especially with the, the, the Dobbs case in their back pocket. They saw an opportunity. And then to have it flipped on its head and the Republicans start coming back in the polls, that should speak to the fact that the Republicans really had something going on here, or at least when it comes to their messaging about inflation, they were on to something. Does that mean that that was the totality of what they should have been talking about? No. But obviously, when the polls shifted back and forth as greatly as they did, honestly, I would say the polls were more volatile than the market this year, which is amazing. I mean, the the market's been very volatile this year, and the polls going back and forth have been as well. But when you see this drastic shift to the left, and then as we get closer to the election, another drastic shift to the right, you know, you would have really expected this this red wave. And I think the Republicans didn't necessarily capitalize on this momentum. They were going out, and they were just saying, vote for me because I'm not a Democrat. Does that remind you of anybody's strategy? Does that remind you of anybody, uh, the Democrats versus Trump? Vote for me because I'm not Trump. Vote. F- they're basically saying, this is a referendum on Joe Biden and his policies. Vote for me. And before going into the election, I was reading a lot of articles that discuss that the Republicans aren't necessarily putting forward a cohesive message. Besides, oh, we'll stop spending some and we'll address some issues about abortion, maybe. And that's not even all Republicans. A lot of them let it sit and go to the state and didn't want to deal with it on a federal level. But when you have a simple message, that's great to get to your base, and it you know can rile them up. But when you're trying to gain these independent voters and some of the more hardline thinkers, they don't want to just hear, vote for me because I'm not a Democrat. Vote for me because I am not the other side. One, independents don't think that way because they are willing to vote for Democrats or Republicans depending on what the candidate proposes and what policies they want to put in place and if those align with their values. So that immediately kind of puts a lot of independents in a middle ground where, oh, the Democrats are actually saying that we're going to do certain things policy-wise, whether you agree with them or not, but the Republicans are just saying, oh, no, we are not the Democrats, therefore vote for us. Those independents are not going to be swayed by that message. So at the end of the day, I'm kind of arguing here that those articles that I read that said that they didn't have a message, that when I read them at the time, I was like, no, they have a few things they're talking about. But in hindsight, reading through what a lot of these Republicans were saying, I I would actually agree. They had one or two messages, which is, Crime is higher than it's ever been. Inflation is higher than it's ever been. That's because of Democrats. Not offering solutions and not saying how they'll fix those problems besides just being a Republican. And now, with hindsight, I can see that that could be a reason. That could be a factor as to why they did not win the landslide victory that they thought they were going to win. And honestly, this should have been predictable. They should have looked back at trends when it came down to oh, I am not Donald Trump. When Democrats voted for someone that's just not Donald Trump. That worked on a presidential level, but the midterms didn't turn out as well for them in 20... 
18 as they thought they would be. They thought there was going to be a huge blue wave, and it just turned out to be a blue trickle just as well. So the Republicans should have looked at that and said, oh, just saying we're not the other party, just making it a referendum on the other party, that's not going to work. And I'm not trying to say they think the American people are stupid, but you do have to ask the question, why do they think this will work? At the end of the day, the American people care about issues, not just talking points. A lot of people can't see past it, but more people can see past the fact that, oh, you're just saying these things to us. You're saying empty platitudes. You're just trying to reassure us, tell us that, oh, we'll make it better, but not telling us how. And the American people have become a lot more politically savvy over the last few years with the increase of social media usage and how politics has spread into the culture more. A lot of people are more politically savvy and they're starting to pay attention and truly understand what politicians are like. There is not a moment that politicians are not filmed nowadays. When they're out at events, they're filmed and it's broadcast to the nation, not just the local news channel. So people on a national scale really have a good idea of what these politicians do. So they can't get away anymore with just trying to please the voter, saying, oh, I'm here for you. I'm going to make sure that we get this done and this done. And then going to a completely different town and saying something not similar, but just a little bit different with different talking points. Now they have to have a cohesive message. And with the amount of data that's out there, they have to have a cohesive message cohesive message as a party too not just on an individual level because at the end of the day if one candidate one senator in arizona and one uh, senator in florida are saying completely different things then at the end of the day they're actually going to be at odds when they get into the senate for the most part even if they're from the same party meaning voters don't have faith that even though that senator may want to help them and actually put in policies that will help them that that senator could face conflict within their own party. So that's why there also has to be a cohesive national message as well as just a cohesive plan from each individual candidate. And I think that really speaks to the issue that's going on in the right here. And to be honest, this article goes in a totally different direction. Um, I kind of just went on a long rant here. But I, I think, honestly, it's a little bit more important to talk about what the Republicans did wrong and how they can address it rather than go through an article that just criticizes them for uh, not doing things right, not advertising right, and talking about DeSantis towards the end of it. So we'll move on from this artic- article to one from The Dispatch. Why don't Republicans win in big cities? So of the top 20 largest cities in the United States... Only two of them are governed by Republicans. One is Fort Worth, and the other one is Jacksonville. So with that understanding, you really have to ask yourself, is our cities just more liberal? I mean, yes, they, they are, but that's not the entire factor. Quote, looking at the relationship between urbanization and political leaning, the historical trend is not without exceptions, but it is clear. Urban states are democratic states. Of the 15 most heavily urban states in the country, Trump won two, Florida and Texas. Outside of presidential elections, those urban states are mostly very tough ground for Republicans. New York, New Jersey, California, Massachusetts, Illinois, Connecticut, etc., Young, educated urbanites in Texas 
are a lot like their counterparts anywhere else across the country. Imagine yourself as a high-achieving young Texan who wants to attend an elite university, graduate, move to Austin, and work at Apple. What does the Republican Party stand for that makes you feel you belong there? End quote. So what the author is highlighting there is the old adage that people want to be where their jobs are, especially young people who are coming out of college with degrees that are applicable in high-growth industries or industries that pay really well. And a lot of those companies that pay really well centralize themselves in cities. And that's because in a city, it's more densely populated, meaning that they can do less work to find more people that can work in their company. Imagine you go out into the middle of the farmland. If you take, you know, if you send out people to put up flyers, and this is just say, let's say you're a small business, you send out people to put up flyers in a one mile radius in a small town, that is going to be seen by less people than if you did the exact same thing in a major city. So these companies want to be where the intellectual talent is, as well as where they can get a lot of it cheaper. And then these people, these educated people, they see that, oh, these companies are going to these major cities. Well, I guess I have to go there to get a good job. So it's kind of a self-perpetuating loop. And then it really speaks to beyond that. So we have to now look, okay, so we know why the young people are going to this city, but why are young people voting Democrat? Why do you have to vote Democrat if you're young? And they're not saying that you have to vote Democrat if you're young. But if you look at statistics, Gen Z and millennial, the millennial generation, are very democratic. The young contingent actually won or at least made sure that the red wave was not as impactful as it was with a lot of Gen Z and millennials going out there and voting. And this comes with a a certain cultural shift. A lot of younger people want to be able to live their lives, have a little bit more freedom, and not necessarily be constrained by normal social mores or institutional mores. And that's something that happens when you're young, or at least, you know, in an ideal sense, when you're young, naive, you don't necessarily understand how the world works, or even if you do understand how the world works, you have an ideal that you're striving for, and you haven't been... I always say this, and I I'm say it in a bit of a tongue-in-cheek way, but you haven't been crushed by the system yet. You haven't been made to conform. You still have grand ideas of what you can do with your life, and certain realities haven't sunk in yet. So that's part of it. But also, the Republicans, they're not really reaching out to these young intellectuals. Uh, a lot of Republicans nowadays, they've kind of tried to shift their ideas, their values, and present them towards blue-collar workers in the middle of the country or in areas that are a little bit less financially, uh, let's just say, invigorated. Uh, so at the end of the day, these Republicans are looking at these college students saying, oh, they're just woke kids coming out of college. They'll, they'll turn around when they see the realities of the world. Which is, which is not true. At the end of the day, these kids coming out of college are shaping the next generation. They are shaping what the world will look like. Of course, there are going to be hard realities that they'll have to face. But at the end of the day, these are the people that are going into HR, that are going into different programs that will change how companies operate in the future. So the Republicans haven't made inroads because they see it as a fatal battle. Oh, these college kids are just coming out. They're woke. We need to focus on the non college contingent. And in doing so, they're actually 
relegating themselves to the fate of exactly what they're saying the problem is. They're saying that these kids are coming out too woke, and you know, at the end of the day, it will self-correct, that they'll realize that life isn't as simple as, oh, mommy and daddy are paying for your college tuition, so you can just skate it along. And then when you get in the real world, things will be hard. That's not the case. Uh, and they're kind of, by saying that and leaving that contingent, that young demographic to just fester, they're actually guaranteeing that they won't, first off, that they won't win that population. So they're only going to perpetuate that lie to themselves that, oh, the kids are just getting more woke. But also, then they're not going to make serious inroads that in 20 years, even if they do become more conservative, they're still more liberal. They're still more left than the current conservative. And that's going to slowly shift the Overton window. And to speak about my point about oh, mommy and daddy paying for college, a lot of the college kids I know, they're Democrats, they're liberals, and they are paying for their own college. They're working hard. They're not sitting there with mommy and daddy's money. So this perception that the older generation, the older Republican Party has about the current generation, it, it's a little bit warped. They don't actually come to these campuses and sit down and talk with young people, like young liberals, young conservatives. So then they don't know how to help them and actually address issues that are important to them. And to be honest, they probably don't want to because a lot of young kids, at least whether they're liberal or they're conservative, the ones that I've talked to are very populist. They're very distrusting of the government and distrusting of power. And you can look back to, and I'm talking Gen Z here, not so much millennials, and you can understand why. We grew up in the middle of the 2008 recession where the government just stepped in and bailed out huge, huge banks. We grew up in a time when we were in a pointless war in Iraq. We grew up in a time where these massive institutions, these online companies that were being founded, have constantly been relegating certain people to dark corners where they can't spread their opinion. And we've also lived under a time when Edward Snowden leaked how the government has been listening, cataloging its own citizens' information. And so you can kind of see why we have a deep distrust. We kind of grew up in this time where a lot of government ills were coming to light. So this generation is very populist, whether they're liberal or conservative, they're very populist, they're very anti-government. I bet if I was to talk to 100 people on campus, like 70% of them would be okay with putting in term limits for congressmen and senators. And I am pretty certain that a lot of congressmen and senators don't want to hear that message and they don't want to come to these college campuses because a lot of these anti-power movements, a lot of these ideas about limiting the power of government, those are not popular with politicians, even the Republican ones, because at the end of the day, their job depends on the power of the government. And the people that work for them, the bureaucrats, also only have a job because government just keeps getting bigger. There are more agencies, more regulations, so on and so forth. So at the end of the day, they don't want to talk to a young populist generation that is sitting down and saying, no, no, we don't want to have the political game. We don't want to play your political game. We want you to listen to us and affect change. So you know, there's also this, I talked a lot about Gen Z there, but there's, they're also having a hard time getting to millennial women. Quote, Republicans have an increasingly hard time reaching a millennial woman with an elite university education, a graduate degree, and an address in a major city 
that will soon be the nation's third largest metropolitan area, end quote. And they're talking about Fort Worth here, I believe. So the author makes it sound so simple that they can't reach this demographic. But once again, they're not really trying. They're not putting in the time, putting in the effort to go down and listen to these people and listen to the issues that they find important. And that's the main thing. You can't you can't get somebody to come vote Republican if you don't understand what they want from you. And you can't go down and convince them that Republicans are the good option if you're not down on the ground. Because at the end of the day, we live in social media bubbles. We live in bubbles of our own creation. So this young millennial woman is going to go on TikTok. She's going to go on Instagram. And she is going to be surrounded by messages that she has curated for herself. So unless you go down there in person and you try to break the bubble and show that you care, you are not going to make any ground. All right. I've talked a lot about Republicans here. I've kind of ranted on them a little bit, but I just I'm dissatisfied with the way that the current system is Democrat and Republicans. They don't care about the people. They just care about getting reelected. And that is unacceptable. And I'm sorry if I sound like a naive, idealistic young person, but that's just how I see it. All right, moving on from American politics, we have an article here from Quartz. Mineral-rich countries want to form an OPEC for battery materials. Battery minerals, excuse me. So as we saw within the last month, OPEC can have an outsized impact on how we live our lives here in America. Now, imagine that in the future there's a OPEC-like group that controls the raw materials for the single most important resource in the 21st century, batteries. Now, imagine that. Take a step back. Everything, I repeat, everything that we hold dear, that we use in this world, has batteries. I'm currently recording on a computer. has a battery. I have a tablet in front of me with notes. Computer. The mic stereo has a battery in it to make sure that there's a pass-through for the mic I have, the headphones I'm listening with recording this podcast. The headphones themselves have a battery. The hard drive has a small battery to facilitate the movement of power. Speakers, TVs, cars, all of these things, especially electronic vehicles, all of these things have batteries. They have become so ingrained in our life that you honestly don't even think about them anymore. Besides the fact, oh, I got to charge my battery. That is part of your normal routine. You don't think about how beautiful these technology is and how it facilitates a lot of the work that we do on a day-to-day basis. Now, imagine a cartel of countries that has the ability to restrict the amount of resources that leave their country to say, oh, no, no, we're not working with this industry until you pay us this amount to cap the amount of production, not just the export, but actually how much is being produced in order to fix prices like OPEC did recently. That is a staggering amount of control for a technology that's only going to become more important throughout the 21st century. Quote, global lithium demand is surging. Lithium prices are soaring for countries with an abundance of the mineral and other battery metals like nickel and cobalt. The possibility of increasing their influence on the global supply of these sought-after commodities is a lucrative prospect. Electronic vehicles and energy storage systems will drive a bulk of lithium demand in coming decades. 
And as the EV revolution takes off, lithium demand is forecast to outstrip supply. Quote, the battery will be the defining technology and supply chain battleground for the industry in the next decade. And access to their constitute raw materials will be crucial, end quote. And that comes from the S&P Global. So, like I said, this article is just, it's not saying that's a done deal. They're trying to highlight the impact that this can have on us as consumers. So, you know, these organizations, in theory, like I said earlier, they could set production amounts at a fixed number saying, oh, no, no, we're not going to mine or process any more lithium this this year. We're, we're going to set it at this amount. Or this month, we're only going to produce half as much as we did last time in order to raise the price. But also, to, they could use it as political leverage to some degree. Oh, we don't agree with your policies or your tariffs are a little too high. The U.S., oh, you're putting tariffs on our country. Well, we're going to talk to our friends in this, let's call it CPEC, we're going to say, hey, CPEC, we, we should uh, fix the prices a little bit more. You know, it'll help us in the long run. We can get a little bit more money out of it. And, hey, hey, we can show the U.S. who's boss for putting tariffs on our, our lithium. So, you know, this is a interesting prospect that will have far-reaching applications. The cost of batteries may go up with this kind of thing, meaning... Either companies are going to have to innovate and find a better way to use a smaller amount of lithium and nickel and cobalt or find a new metal so that these companies are not as reliant on these exporters. Or the prices for consumers are going to have to go up. Those are There are a few other options, but those are the two main ones that I see coming if this cartel comes into existence. And, you know, this idea has been popular in the Southeast Asian countries like Indonesia... Also in the lithium triangle in South America that consists of Argentina, Chile, and Bolivia. Quote, Telam, Argentina's national news agency, reported last month that foreign ministers from Argentina, Bolivia, and Chile are in advanced talks to create a mechanism that would give them control over lithium prices at a global level. Like Indonesia, the three countries often called the lithium triangle because they represent 58% of the world's identified lithium resources, are hoping to get other major producers on board, including, according to Brazil's Rio Times, the trio of foreign ministers hopes to have Australia, the world's leading lithium producer, in the proposed lithium cartel, end quote. So if they were to get Australia involved, this would indeed be a very, very powerful cartel. Though that these three countries have 58% of the world's identified lithium, Australia alone is the largest producer or exporter. So, you know, that, that would be a big win if they were able to convince Australia. And then imagine Indonesia coming in as well. That, that would be dangerous. But they do have to remember that they can't push too hard here because, as these quote points out, has 58 of the identified, 58% of the identified lithium resources. There are plenty of other lithium resources out there, and they could be in countries in Africa that don't necessarily have the resources yet to have these mines open. So if they create an OPEC-like nation and don't include these countries in Africa or maybe in the Central Asia region that have access to this lithium as well, 
then they're actually going to spur countries that don't want to deal with this OPEC-like organization, this cartel, to start investing in those other countries to build up their infrastructure to you know, mine lithium, mine nickel, mine cobalt. So they have to be very careful going forward here, especially when it comes to China. Quote, China is the world's largest producer of EVs and currently commands 58% of the global lithium processing capacity, even through its barely 6% of global identified lithium resources. That means lithium producers would still be reliant on China to process raw materials into usable form or to purchase the processed lithium carbonate or hydroxide to use in batteries. In the medium term, any cartel would still be pretty dependent on China being its main consumer, and thus China would still hold some power in this agreement, said Jennings Gray. Quote, on a longer term, uh, longer time frame, it's hard to say, as various regions develop their own battery hubs, and thus some demand shifts away from China. End quote. So, you know, it's this idea of the power that the producer has and the power that the customer has. And they're at odds here. Right now, China has the power of the customer. And it is it greatly outweighs these countries because they're not teaming up. They may, there may be some formal agreements. They may be undercutting each other a little bit. But they're not teaming up. So China, as the leading EV producer and the country that holds the most production capability and processing capability for lithium, they hold a lot of power. So if anything, this cartel would actually balance the scales rather than tipping it in their favor. So, you know, we'll see how all of this pans out. Just keep it in mind. Keep looking out for it. Because if anything, it's just something that you should be aware of when looking into the future and saying, what is going to be, what is it going to be like when I get out of college? What is it going to be like when in five years? Is the products, these EV cars, are they going to be more expensive? Am I going to have to pay more because the batteries, the materials for the batteries are being controlled by a cartel? These are questions that, you know, you don't have to answer, but I think they're important when you look at the your future and understanding how certain global politics and global interactions with other nations and between other nations directly affect us here in the U.S. And I know people don't like saying that we need to have a globalist view, but at the end of the day, our supply chains are so intertwined, you have to at least have some sense of what's going on in the globe, on even on a small scale, just to understand what's happening. And if you're a business person, then it could give you a business opportunity to start more lithium speculation here in the U.S. Maybe you see an opportunity to start processing more lithium here in the United States, like Elon Musk did, so that we could actually take a little bit of that power away from China and then also maybe discourage these countries from creating the cartel in the first place because they're not so beholden to one country as their major market. I'm not saying it's a great business opportunity. I haven't done the fundamentals, but these are the things that you can sit down and think about when you look at the opportunities or the global situation. All right. With that out of the way, we're going to go to our daily delight. A Dotson and Lively Tortoise play a game of soccer. Marcel, a dog, and Jaguar, a tortoise. Yes, I, I know the irony of the name, and I understand. I was a little confused when I first read it have been getting ready for the World Cup. Quote, they played a lively game of football, soccer, together in the family's Anthrobeltrum yard. 
This heartwarming scene was captured by their human, Rudy Jansen's, end quote. So it really reminds me of how my dog and I used to go out and play soccer in the backyard as a kid, especially with the World Cup coming up. We would set up the goals. You know, she would never get the, the ball to the goal, but she would definitely try to dribble it around, and it was always cute to watch. Quote, Jansen told the Good News Network that he found the tortoise at a local forest 30 years prior, and he has lived with the family ever since. He has been given the name Jaguar because he is very quick. A little bit of irony there. All right, so if you want to see any of the cute videos of these two playing soccer or read any of today's articles, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. And also down there in the description is my Twitter handle, at Your Daily Flip. Post there daily. Some days it's the podcast going out. Sometimes it's quote tweets. Basically, it's a simpler way to stay informed without having to listen to this entire podcast. And you can just kind of browse through while you're already looking on Twitter. All right. With that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.